This is WeSearch. I'm M. Muir. Boy, howdy, I am so excited to have gotten to interview one of my best friends as my first guest. I've known Erin since we were teeny tiny kids, and she constantly blows me away with how smart she is. Erin Tinney is a criminology doctoral student at the University of Maryland and is an absolutely delightful human being. Okay, so what is criminology? I wasn't totally sure and had to do a little research on my own. Criminology and criminal justice are super easy to confuse because they both deal with crime and law enforcement. Criminal justice deals with the aftermath of crimes from the investigation all the way to taking the criminal to trial in prison, while criminology deals more with why crimes happen and how we can prevent them. Erin and I discuss how bias plays a role in both statistics in real life, how to put research into play, the school-to-prison pipeline, and why being open to new and challenging ideas is so important in this episode of WeSearch. So, would you mind introducing yourself to me, even though I already know you? Sure. Uh, so, my name is Erin Tinney. I just finished my first year of graduate school in criminology and criminal justice at the University of Maryland College Park, and I am getting my PhD in criminology and criminal justice, hopefully in the next four years. <laughs> um <laughs> I went straight from my undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania, where I studied criminology and neuroscience. So that's me. She's a smarty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks. So, Erin, what is criminology? So, like, is it a true crime podcast and you're studying it? Or, like, is it a weird, long episode of CSI? What's your life like? What do you do in your job? (laughs) So, unfortunately, it's not that exciting. Um, So, criminology is actually a subset of sociology that specifically deals with delinquent and criminal behavior and the criminal justice system and how our criminal justice system interacts with our society. Um, So, I do a lot of literature reviews and statistics and data analytics it's it's an academic field whereas those kind of csi crime scene investigation people and lawyers um and judges they're the more professional side they actually work in the criminal justice system whereas most people who earn their phds in criminology might not do that they're gonna do more of the research stuff so a show about us would be very, very boring. You would just see me wanting to tear my computer apart because <laughs> something didn't work on my statistics program. Uh, so we're academics, um, just like sociologists or psychologists or any other field like that. Cool. Okay, so how did you discover criminology? Have you always wanted to do like some kind of 
law, but also research? Or did you kind of discover it very like naturally? Or did you like, always know you wanted to do this? Yeah, so um, I knew I always wanted to do research, and I was specifically interested in human behavior, um, as far as I could remember. Um, And when it's kind of weird, like I when I think about it, I don't remember exactly like a point in time where it was like, oh, I'm gonna study criminology. <laughs> it was just, I just kind of knew that. Like even in high school, it's like, oh, I need to find a school with a criminology program. Like I just kind of knew that, and I have no idea when it popped into my brain or how I even <laughs> figured it out. Um, but at first, I wanted to do biosocial criminology, which is essentially how. Our society plus um, psychology and biology and nutrition and things like that interact with each other in our behavior. Um, But then actually in college, I started getting involved with nonprofit and advocacy work, particularly in the communities of Philadelphia. Um, And so I became actually more interested in the effect of our criminal justice system on our society um, and particularly how it interacts with schools and other education systems. So that's how I ended up here. But it's it's kind of weird. There was never, like, a day where I opened a book and I was like, criminology? Like, I have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> it really popped in my head, but I love it and I'm dedicating my life to it. So, <laughs> so what about criminology gets you really hyped because you do sound so excited about it, but also it sounds like it could be a real downer. Yeah, it's, uh, what gets me really excited about it is that it's research for some purpose and some form of action. Um, I'm really interested in criminal justice reform, and so I really want my research to contribute to positive policy change. And what gets me really excited is not only seeing my own work and the potential of my own work, but seeing my colleagues and you know, really famous people in the field um, being listened to and their work actually changing things for the better. Um, So that's what gets me really excited about criminology. And um, I'm also a big nerd and I love the process of research um, and being able to ask a question and then get the data and find an answer. Um, Even in the most frustrating times or the most depressing times, um, it's just looking towards the future that gets me really excited and the potential of my research to cause some positive change. So that's what gets me hype about it, even though the subject matter can be depressing, especially because I do study the impact of the justice system on communities a lot of the time. So that's really depressing, but there's like potential and hope and that's what gets me really excited about it. Um, besides just the fun of research. Okay, so (laughs) what do you do as your job then? If you're doing research, like what, how is, what is your job? So nine months out of the year, I'm a grad student. Um, and so my job in that, that I get paid for while being a grad student is being a research assistant. Um, so I'm working for a new professor this upcoming year. And, um, but right now 
I work for the Vera Institute of Justice, which is a nonprofit criminal justice research agency, um, and I'm working in their DC office for the summer. And so basically, I'm part of their reshaping prosecution team, where they do research in order to help prosecutors remake make better decisions and make more reform-minded decisions. So right now I'm helping them write a policy memo, which is kind of usually out of my comfort zone, but it's nice to do something new. Um, But most of the time during the year, I'm doing more data things or literature reviews um, or things that contribute to a more traditional academic research process. Nice. So is the work that you're doing at the Vera Institute of Justice influenced by the fact that you're living in D.C. and there's a lot of policymakers around you? Yeah, so um, I th- one of the reasons that I picked University of Maryland actually was because it was close to D.C. And uh, D.C. is a great place if you want to do anything with policy work, um, particularly at like a federal level. Um, so I think there's a big advantage of me living close to D.C. Um, but that being said, some fantastic research is done uh, in every state, city, town in the country. It's definitely not uh, just limited to D.C. or any huge cities. But yeah, being in D.C. is great, but it's not necessary for the kind of work that we ah. do. So what are your responsibilities at your job with the Vera Institute? So um, I have like my hand in a little bit of a few things. The policy memo is kind of my pet project for the summer. So I spend most of my time doing that. Um, A lot of that is actually looking up similar policies to uh, ones enacted in D.C. Saying, okay, did these work? Did these not work? Um. I also help on an initiative that they're doing called the Dignity Racial Justice and Prosecution Initiative, where essentially they're gathering a bunch of prosecutors together and they discuss how they can insert dignity and racial justice into their work. Um, So I kind of help them with little things like that. Also just little things that they're doing. Um, It's been really interesting. It's not the stuff that I normally do. Um, It might be things that, like, oh, we're doing this promo video for this um, new policy by this prosecutor. Can you critique the video? Like, it's these things that are all contributing to these policies that are not normally in my realm as an academic. Um, But that's been really cool, and um, it's things that are more immediate than the work I normally do. So... It's been really cool, but um, it's definitely a little bit different from the normal research stuff that I actually do. Yeah, so Erin, um, what is a prosecutor and what role do they have on local criminal justice? Yeah, absolutely. So the prosecutor is the one, they are the lawyer for the state. So if you hear of a, like a Uh, a case that's like the state of Ohio versus M. Muir. Wow, call me out. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I could have used my own name, but I didn't. Um, (laughs) We could say the state of Maryland versus Aaron Tinney. Um, 
the lawyer representing the state is the prosecutor, and they're the ones that decide what you get charged with. So kind of an easier example, though a dark example, is uh, you have murder in the first degree, second degree, and third uh-huh. degree. Or third degree murder is manslaughter in most states. Um, so they decide, okay, well, I'm going to charge you with second degree murder. And then it's really complicated, but essentially... <laughs> they're the person who kind of decides what the crime somebody's being tried with is, right? Okay. Yes, exactly. So they can... They have a lot of power, actually. They can decide whether or not you're charged. So if the police bring in someone, they can say, we don't want to charge this person at all. They're free to go. They don't have any... For all intents and purposes, they aren't connected with the criminal justice system at all. Um, So where kind of local policy comes in is you have state's attorney general and they're the people who can they're prosecutors um, but they're at like the top of the food chain sort of in the state and they can decide local policies so they can say all right all the prosecutors in my office cannot charge um for possession of marijuana even if it's technically a crime in the state to possess Mm -hmm. marijuana it could be decriminalized in that no one is going to be charged for it. Oh. So they have a lot of power and a lot of these states' prosecutors um, or local prosecutors are actually elected. So that's why it's really important if you're able to vote, to vote in every election that you can and um, really pay attention to those and see what their policies are. Um, there are some great resources for understanding um, what these policies mean. And normally prosecutors who are running on their websites will kind of spell it out in terms um, that are easy for someone that doesn't have a law degree to understand because I didn't really understand what a prosecutor did. Like, I knew. I was like, yeah, they're the lawyer representing the state. But even... I, like, study criminology, and it still took me a couple, like, it took me until this convening to really understand what a prosecutor actually did and the power they have. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's really strange, and it's really <laughs> important for people to actually understand um, what these people do, because they affect so many lives. Um, so, yeah, that's a prosecutor, and why it's important to know who your <laughs> prosecutor is. <laughs> If you can vote for them, some places you can't vote for them, but if you can, do if you can vote. As Aaron mentioned, local policy and government play a big role in the justice system that you may and probably do interact with in your daily life. Being able to vote in both local and national elections is a right that all American citizens over the age of 18 have, and it should be a priority. Educating yourself on who's running and for what is crucial in creating a society that you want to live in. Websites like Ballotpedia.org, RockTheVote.org, PolitiFact.com, Vote411.org, IssueVoter.org, and USA.gov slash voter dash research are incredibly helpful nonpartisan resources that you can use to help you figure out how to register, where to vote, when to vote, and who you can vote for. 
Many local elections also try to make meeting candidates and learning about their policies super easy. You can always Google your city and country and local elections to find out more information, when events are, and how to get involved in helping your community get involved in voicing their opinion. I'm going to post some links to all of these websites on my website, emmure.com slash research. It's going to be in the episode notes for this episode. Okay, cool. Um, so... When you're doing research for your job, is that also something that you're doing for fun outside of work? Not necessarily that it's always fun, but is it something that you do um, outside of work, basically? Yeah, so um, I'm the kind of person where I want my job to be something that I'm passionate about. Um, and so for me, it's it's a blend of the two. There's no real kind of division between like oh this is my job and this is what I do for fun I mean I do other (laughs) things for fun which is especially helpful and I think this is a lot of the point of view of people who go into academia I mean not to like speak for them but from just like what I've heard you put in a lot of hours and there's not as clear cut of a nine to five and so it is something where it's I'm so passionate about this I'm gonna work at it till it gets done and then, oh, cool, I happen to get paid for it, too. In in graduate school, and I think in academia as well, um, for some people, teaching is their job. So, like, when I was a teaching assistant last year, that was kind of my job. And then my research was the fun part. Um, but for some people, like, teaching is their passion project. And then, oh, I do research on the side because that's kind of part of the job description. So it really depends on who you are. But I think there isn't anyone who goes into academia as like, oh, they're nine to five because it's not a nine to five. (laughs) It's way too much work. If you're not passionate about it, it's so much work. (laughs) When you're doing research, there are mainly two types of data that you're going to collect, which are qualitative data and quantitative data. Qualitative data is data that's collected through observation and interviews, and it's reported in the language of the person doing the research. Quantitative data is the hard numbers and facts. So it's going to be anything that's collected through measuring things, making numerical comparisons, doing statistics, and making inferences from the numbers. So which kind of data do you usually collect? That's a great question. So I actually mostly do quantitative. Um, So I work with numbers and... (laughs) statistics packages and things like that um that's just kind of based on my background from my education and the work that I do um but I have used qualitative data in the past I've I don't think I've ever formally collected qualitative data for anything um just because it's a lot harder especially for a student um but I think that mixed methods even if it's not just in one piece of research but across kind of one question or one body of research is really important because quantitative can help you see the big picture. So, all right, this percent of people went to prison for this charge versus qualitative can tell you about methods and uh, the reasons why people do something. So So if I say, okay, we'll go back to prosecutors for a little bit. If I say, okay, well, 
80% of the people arrested for marijuana possession in this county ultimately went to prison. And I say, okay, that's that's my quantitative part. That's my numbers. I know, okay, 80% is a lot of people, like, depending on how big the number is. But 80% is a lot of the people who are coming in. I can go talk to the prosecutors in that area and say, why are so many people going to prison? Or talk to the judges. And they might say, oh, it's because I have an election coming up and I have to look really tough on crime. Mm. And the people in this area don't agree with marijuana legalization. So it's really small picture in that you're probably only speaking to a few people, but it really gets at like the mechanisms and the why versus quantitative is kind of the big what, what is happening in this bigger picture. But hopefully that kind of illustrates sort of the difference um, and the different types of questions that they aim to answer. Um, so I mostly do quantitative stuff. My program is very quantitative focused, but we're really trying to push towards mixed methods where we use both quantitative and qualitative data to get a bigger picture. That's super cool. I That's really interesting to know. And especially with the fact that you're dealing with a lot more policy than maybe some other criminologists are. It's, mm-hmm. I think, super interesting, the approach to using the mixed methods for it. So how is the research that you do for your job different or the same as what you do academically? In terms of my job for the summer, that's kind of different. Um, It's kind of different to what I normally do, but for the school year, um, especially being a research assistant, I'm mostly going to be kind of doing the same sorts of things, just on different projects. So Academically, I'm starting my thesis right now, um, so I'm mostly just doing a lot of reading and thinking of my question and my hypotheses, kind of very big picture things, um, whereas for my job, I might be helping the professor do this very specific uh, data task or, oh, I know this is out there in the literature, can you go find this specific paper for me? Um So it's a lot of the same sorts of tasks. It's just going to be a little bit different from day to day, depending on where you are in the research process with any of the things you're working on. Um, So what does research look like? Is it reading or are you talking to people and policymakers or are you using software to crunch numbers? What are you what are you doing every day? (laughs) yeah so it could look like all of those things um not for me specifically um at this point in my career hopefully soon (laughs) um I'll actually be talking to people and gathering data um there's a lot of reading um especially as a beginning student your job is essentially to kind of absorb as much information as possible from the people before you so you can kind of build off of that and criminology at least what I do a lot especially since I use quantitative data um, uses something called secondhand data uh, which is essentially data that I get from another source so for example if I have the demographic information of the adolescents currently in justice facilities in Pennsylvania I would get that from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Um, 
I wouldn't gather that myself. That wouldn't be me going into every justice facility and saying, okay, this person, this person, this person. That would be something I would get from another source. Whereas first-hand data collection might be something where, okay, I'm going to go interview some of the corrections officers in these facilities, and I personally am going to go ask them questions. That would be first-hand data collection, where I'm physically there gathering my own data. So for right now, I mostly do second-hand data analysis, where somebody gives me what we usually like to call raw data, where it's literally just the numbers on, like, some sort of spreadsheet, and it's a big old mess, (laughs) and, um... I'm gonna, okay, how can I extract something meaningful out of these columns and columns of numbers and random words and things like that? So, all right, let's delve a little bit deeper into that quantitative data. Woo! Let's talk about stats! So, yes! (laughs) All right, get freaking ready because Aaron and I have a big ol' statistics special in the works. We're gonna go over the basics of how to read, understand, and think about the hard numbers of research. But for now, Erin does a really good job at explaining what you should know about statistics in her research. I know that the justice system has a lot of political and social bias to it, but how, how does bias mm-hmm. play a role in the numbers and how crimes get reported or don't get reported and shared? Yeah, absolutely. So the numbers themselves, those, unless something went wrong with the actual data collection or something like that, barring that, um, barring that sort of human error, the numbers themselves don't lie, but you can make them lie. Um, So I know. (laughs) Without even doing anything technically wrong, I can manipulate how I'm doing something in order to get the answer that I want, or I can interpret something in order to get the answer that I want. So I can include or not include some sort of key variable in order to change the story of what I'm saying. Um, So I think the main way that bias comes in sort of that is confirmation bias, where basically confirmation bias is... I'm only going to understand statistics and data and information given to me in a way that aligns with my preconceived notions. So I think that the sky is green and I'm only going to listen to information and take information seriously that confirms that the sky is green. Okay. So So, would this kind of come into play in those people who are like, ooh, this neighborhood is bad. There's so much crime. Is that kind of where that comes into play? Yeah, absolutely. So that could be, um, that could be a part of it where it's like, oh, look at this number. It says that crime is really high in this area. So it's a bad neighborhood. Um, but another thing that's really important is to put everything in context. So, okay, yeah, let's see, the crime rate is really high here. One thing that's really important to ask yourself is, what are they exactly measuring? Because crime is this really big thing, right? Like, you can think of jaywalking and murder (laughs) are both crimes. (laughs) But they're so different. And so, if jaywalking is the only crime that I'm measuring, that's going to look pretty, that's going to look fairly uniform, Everyone, 
Not everyone. A yeah. lot of people jaywalk. I jay- Maybe I just jaywalk a lot. Um, but if I'm looking at, oh, crime is the number of arrests. Okay. Well, if police and other people already think that this area is bad, quote unquote, then they might send more police there. Well, if there's more police there, more people are just going to be arrested um, just by pure numbers. And, okay, that's going to keep this cycle of, oh, there's more crime because there's more arrests because there's more crime. Twice a year, the U.S. Bureau of Justice conducts the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is used to learn about the frequency of crimes happening and their effects from the point of view of the victims. The results of this survey are compared to the actual hard numbers of recorded crimes that happen. One of the key findings is that many crimes don't get reported. The DOJ uses the difference between the data from the survey and the data from reported crimes to learn about the amount of unreported or undiscovered crimes in the U.S. Sometimes follow-up questions can address why, but they don't always. This can range anywhere from not reporting something stolen because it's easily replaceable to not trusting police enough to involve them, often out of fear for police brutality, to not feeling as though the victim's struggle is even worth police and legal involvement's time. So this mysterious number of crimes has one of the best names of all time. It's referred to by criminologists as the dark figure of crime, which is really the crimes that don't get reported, so aren't handled by justice officials. And if you don't name your punk band the dark figure of crime to raise awareness for crime underreporting, do you even care about injustice in the justice system? I think that's kind of where bias comes in, in terms of a crime rate here is not the same as a crime rate there. Like, they are not objectively the same. So... I think it's really important to know the context of what you're studying and know the context of what they're measuring. Um, Know if the writers have some sort of certain agenda. Um, Everyone has some sort of bias. Everyone has opinions. Like, I have my own opinions on things. But there are some institutions and people that do research um, that want a certain outcome. So, for example, if we talk about, we can go back to prosecutor elections. So, if I am the incumbent prosecutor, so the prosecutor that's currently in office that's rerunning for election, if I'm the incumbent and I want to show that crime went down, or I might want to show that fewer people are in prison, it depends on what my goals are. So, I want to show... I'm a tough on crime prosecutor and I say, oh, I've arrested so many people and therefore crime went down because all these bad people, quote unquote, are on off the streets. If I'm coming in and I'm running for election against this incumbent and I'm reform minded and I want to arrest fewer people, I can take that exact same number and say, Wow, but look at all these people that they've arrested. These are all the bad consequences of this. So it's taking the same facts and putting them in different contexts that can give you the story that you want. So that's where a lot of the bias comes in. It's I'm taking these numbers that are facts plus some human error, which is going to be in every fact. I'm putting them in the context that reflects the story that I wish to Mm. tell. 
So I think it's our goal as consumers of research to step back and say, okay, this is telling me this one thing. What is it trying to tell me? And what is the objective truth that I can get from this? And what does that say about my society and the way that it works? Um, yeah. So, so what yeah. can statistics tell you and what can they not tell you then? Yeah, so statistics, um, a lot of times we're talking about inferential statistics. So what I'm doing with that is I'm getting a collection of data. So let's say that I have the demographic information, like I mentioned earlier, of all the adolescents in the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. What that can tell me, I can say, okay, well, right now... 40% of the adolescents uh, identify as female. Cool. That is what we call a descriptive statistic. That's just a fact. That's how it is. That's what we're doing. All right. That's really not that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's interesting for some things. But what I really want to do is expand the questions that I can ask. Okay. From that information. All right. So... What is, from that information, can I say, is the likelihood of a random female-identifying adolescent on the street, what is their probability of them going to a juvenile justice facility? That's inferential statistics. I'm trying to apply this information to a new question or a new case. It's describing what could be or what is the likelihood of something happening. Um, So a lot of times these sorts of statistics, inferential statistics, can tell you what is the likelihood of something like this happening or what could probably happen. It cannot tell you the future. (laughs) It cannot tell you what definitely will happen. Um, Statistics are not perfect. And... They can't tell you, um, kind of going back to the conversation we had the last question, they can't tell you wholly objective reality. Ah, okay. They, they tell you, they tell you information in the context that it's presented. So I think that's something that's really important for people to remember is that they'll oftentimes see a statistic and they'll say that is objective reality in all cases, A better example of this, so let's say I give a college program to a random group of incarcerated people and I give them some college courses and I say, okay, I want to know what's the likelihood that you commit another crime once you're released after I give you these college credits. So I set up this whole experiment where I give some of the inmates, um, some of these courses and I give similar people in that same prison, I don't give them that. And let's say only 20% of the people who got the college credits committed another crime. And 50% of those who didn't uh, get the college classes committed another crime. I can't look at that 20%. I can look at that 20% and say, oh, that's probably... The rel- that's, you know, likely the percent of people that would uh, commit another crime. There's a lot of 
very careful language and statistics where you say that's the probability, that's the likelihood. What I can't say is, if I were to give these college courses to any group, twenty exactly 20% of them would commit another crime. So you can't say anything in definites with statistics. It can just give you kind of a ballpark. Okay, so it's like correlation and causation. You can notice that they're related and the numbers are kind of similar, but the fact that they had the college classes didn't cause them to commit less crime. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So one example for that would be there's a correlation between these, but it might be because the people who received the college courses might have been more motivated to not commit crime again. or um, So it might not be necessarily that the college courses cause this. It might be oh, they were already more motivated to complete these college courses or they had the ability to complete the college courses, which is also the reason that they may not have committed more crime in the future. So exactly right. So I can see that these things are related, but that doesn't mean that one is the underlying cause of the other. Okay. So do you have a big pet peeve about statistics or something that you wish people knew about it that would make your life as a researcher and person who uses statistics every day so much easier? Yeah, um, I mean, I have a lot of pet peeves. But but I think one thing, it may not necessarily be a pet peeve, just something that um, I think us as researchers are also not great about doing is not emphasizing the difference between statistical and practical significance. So when I'm doing research, when I'm doing statistics, I set this, frankly, arbitrary cutoff for what I consider to be significant and not significant. So I could, let's say I gave the same example as right before with the college courses in in prison. So let's say now that mm, 20% of those who received the courses went on to commit another crime and 30% of those who didn't went on to commit another crime. Based on the number of people in my sample and other things, whatever techniques I'm using, what my cutoff point is, Let's say that number is not statistically significant. So on paper, in my research, I would say we don't have evidence that this actually works because the difference that I saw between those who received college credits and those who didn't was probably due to random chance of the sample. So there was actually no real effect of the college courses. It just so happened that my treatment group was lower than my control group. But if I think about the practical difference too, 10% fewer people committed another crime or were arrested or whatever metric I was using. And if I have a sample of a thousand people overall, that's a hundred fewer people that were rearrested and rebrought back into the criminal justice system. So even though it wasn't statistically significant in quotes, that's still practically significant. Those hundred people are not just as involved anymore. So I think that's something that us as researchers, we get so obsessed with statistical significance that we kind of forget to look back and say, okay, 
this actually means something. I don't know, this difference of one person is actually really important because a person is a person is a person. So it can also go the other way too, where something might be statistically significant, but not practically significant. So um, my roommate, she actually TAs a biology course where it was studying differences in seashell length between these two beaches or essentially it was climate change had made the seashells smaller and the difference was like one centimeter on average that ended up based on the statistics and the number of shells they had that actually ended up being statistically significant where yes okay we are 95 percent sure that climate change is associated with a decrease in the shell length however how big is one centimeter (laughs) so that it's statistically significant in that by the numbers, yes, I can nine with ninety five percent confidence say that there is an association between these two things. However, it's not going to mean that the uh, the what animals are in seashells. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I think it's a it's a variety of uh, invertebrates. Okay, yeah. whatever the invertebrate. <laughs> I can look the that invertebrate up. Invertebrate that inhabits this. <laughs> So which invertebrates live in seashells? I kind of went down a rabbit hole looking into this. Not only do they live in them, but seashells are actually the exoskeletons of mollusks like the nautilus, snails, clams, and oysters. They're made of calcium carbonate and actually grow with the animals that live inside them. How cool! Ah! (laughs) The, The invertebrate that inhabits those seashells, it may not be that ecologically significant for them. It, it might be sign of bad things to come, but for right now, they're probably fine if their little homes are a centimeter smaller. Interesting. All right, so I want to talk about your senior thesis was called Exclusionary mm-hmm. Discipline in the School District of Philadelphia, a descriptive analysis of out-of-school suspensions and in-school arrests from the years 2012 to 2017. So would you mind kind of breaking down the title of it? So like, what's an in-school arrest? Sure, yeah. Um, I can just kind of start from the beginning of it. Um, so exclusionary discipline is any form of discipline in a school that removes the student from the school. So an out-of-school suspension would be, I have suspended the student. It's what you traditionally think of as a suspension, where I've removed the student from the school. They can't come to school for three days or three weeks or whatever it is. Um, An expulsion is essentially just a permanent suspension where I've permanently removed the student from the school. Um, And an in-school arrest is an arrest that takes place on school grounds uh, during school hours. So it's usually if the school calls in a police officer or if a police officer is present in the school and makes an arrest and removes the student from the school. So all of these things kind of go under this umbrella of exclusionary discipline. Essentially, I'm removing a student from the school for a behavior reason. And an in-school arrest can only be if a crime occurred, theoretically. Um, (laughs) Whereas a suspension or expulsion can just be from a violation of school rules, even if that's not necessarily a crime. The school district of Philadelphia, so I studied all the public schools in the school district of Philadelphia. Um, A descriptive analysis, as I talked about earlier, so... This was a very short project. I only had a few months to do it. And essentially what I was doing was I was looking at some new policies that the school district had 
implemented in order to reduce exclusionary discipline. Um, so it was kind of looking, and those were, there was a separate one for suspensions and a separate one for arrests. Um, both of them took place around 2014. So essentially what I was doing is I was looking at, all right, what are suspensions and arrests before and what are suspensions and arrests after? And is there actually any difference? Um, so that was basically <laughs> what I did. And it was a descriptive analysis because I wasn't doing anything inferential. As I described earlier, I was saying, okay, these are the way things are. This school had four arrests before and now they have two. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't doing, I wasn't trying to answer any broader questions or, uh, make a probability statement about something else based on this information. So why are police in schools in the first place? That's, um, it's, <laughs> so, um. Is it like a big systematic problem question and I'm opening a it can is. of worms? You are opening a can <laughs> of worms. Uh, I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. So in the 80s and 90s, we had the tough on crime era where all of the, all politicians, both sides of the aisle, it was a bipartisan perceived issue where they said, oh my gosh, we have to lock up every criminal, we have to monitor people. And there was this perception of the super predator. It was this perceived group, not a specific group, just perceived group of really highly criminal teenagers. And a lot of it was very racially based, racially and ethnically based. And police were in schools because people worried about other students others being not black or Hispanic, um, were worried about student safety. So they put police in schools because of this perception of these super predators and teen gang violence. And that way, okay, we'll be safer if a student brings a weapon to school or if a student assaults another student. We can have them arrested and out of the school. But what ended up happening um, and what's still happening because police are still in schools is that students are put into the justice system immediately and that's essentially what the school to prison pipeline is so police in schools are a big factor of this kids in schools let's say they get into a fight with another student Mm -hmm. and oh the police are there well okay I can just take care of the problem right now we can just arrest these students they're out of the school they're not causing any more problems but what happens is because they're arrested they're put into the criminal justice system so it's a literal almost pipeline straight from school to the justice system so that's what we commonly refer to as the school to prison pipeline but essentially police are in schools because of this fear of school safety but as kind of a way to disguise the fact that Oh, we just want to monitor certain kids. Okay, so so yeah. <laughs> why do some schools have a larger police presence in them than others? Because I feel like there are people that I know who have never had police in their schools like us when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, never did. But there are some people who, you know, seeing a police officer every day at school is a normal thing. So why mm-hmm. do some schools have them and some don't? Is it a racially biased thing or an economically biased thing or is it just chance that police are more present in some schools than others yeah so it's uh definitely on racial and socioeconomic lines a lot of the times they'll be 
correlated with the neighborhoods that they're in. So if a neighborhood has a heavier police presence because they're considered a bad neighborhood, that kind of trickles into the schools and they'll put more police in schools, um, in certain schools. It's also usually a reaction to something. So let's say more kids are bringing weapons into schools due to fear of gang violence in their neighborhoods. Oh my gosh, these kids brought a weapon to school. We have to put in police officers there to protect everyone. Um, So it's a response to perceived crime or perceived higher crime in certain schools, and it's often connected to neighborhood schools. So Em and I went to private schools. Um, You often don't really see police officers in private schools. It's mostly the public schools because they're associated with the neighborhood that they reside in, which because they're associated with the neighborhood that they reside in, it's ultimately going to be racially and socioeconomically biased. So I'm just curious, what trends and conclusions did you see in your thesis research? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, out-of-school suspensions and in-school arrests decreased, but that decrease wasn't uniform. So there wasn't a lot of heavy statistical analysis, so you can't make any You can never make any definites in statistics, but just based on the patterns that I saw, some schools decreased a lot. They really paid attention to the policies, and some schools even increased. Some schools increased in one or decreased in one and not the other. So it really varied based on the implementation of the policies. So what that suggested to me was the school district put out these policies but didn't really have a way to enforce them and some other research that other people have done. Matthew P. Steinberg and Joanna Lacoe's study published in December 2017 looked at the changes in school discipline following a 2012 change in the student code of conduct. Most notably, the revisions made it not okay to suspend or expel students for swearing or not following classroom rules. In order to do this, Steinberg and Lacoe looked at the data from different levels, district-wide, school-wide, and the individual impacts on students from both before and after the change went into effect. They mainly looked at four questions, which are, did Philadelphia's discipline policy reform reduce the use of -of out-of-school suspensions? Was the policy reform associated with changes in suspensions, achievement, and school attendance for students who were suspended prior to the reform? Was the policy reform associated with changes in achievement and school attendances for peers who were not suspended prior to the reform? And was the policy reform associated with a change in racial disproportionality? So I'll link the full study in the episode notes because boy howdy, it is so in-depth. The publication that I am attaching is very comprehensive, even if you're a research paper newbie like me. There are some pretty well-designed charts and graphs to help you out, but Erin does cover it pretty well here. So some of the research that has been conducted on, I think, just the suspension policy um, also had some qualitative interviews with teachers where the teachers said, well, they told us that we weren't allowed to suspend students, but I don't know what else to do because that's ultimately what they were trained to do. Um, Overcrowding in schools is also a really big problem. Um, students are more likely to be suspended if it's a classroom's overcrowded because it's, if I've got 35 students in a classroom and one of them is being disruptive, it's a lot easier for me as the teacher, as the sole teacher in there to kick that student out and then to 
try to individually help this student with whatever needs they have and not being able to actually teach the rest of the classroom the normal subject matter. So I think that was a lot of the difference came from that sort of thing where there was no other alternative. So they were like, well, we're not really going to listen to the policy. Um, Also, some of the principals and head administrators, what they thought about the policy or what they think about suspensions. Some principals are all about removing suspensions, so they immediately followed the policy versus some other principals might say, well, suspension is the best way to keep our students safe and it's easier just to not deal with these students than to put in more resources that we don't have into them. This is my interpretation of, okay, this is why I probably see some schools following the policy and some schools not. Do you want to get into some audience questions? Sure. Okay, so Sarah asked more about how you personally feel about the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, Is there anything else that you think is important for people to know about the school-to-prison pipeline? Um, yeah, so Sarah, thank you. That's an excellent question. Oh, don't get me started. Um, (laughs) I mean, I've already been, I've already started, so... Essentially, I obviously have very negative feelings about it, Um, and it's just a way that opportunities are taken away from students um, because they're involved in the criminal justice system so early on, and their actual needs are not being met. Um, A lot of times you'll see disruptive behavior from students because of an unmet need, whether that be academically, emotionally, psychologically, um, sometimes even medically or physically. And so instead of actually addressing these needs, what we're doing is we're just involving students in the criminal justice system where they're still not getting the resources they need, where some resources are even taken away from them because of what we call collateral consequences of imprisonment or criminal justice system involvement, where essentially collateral consequence is a consequence you don't think about. So if someone goes to prison, it's harder for them to find a job once they leave prison because it's harder for them to find a job. They don't have a stable source of income, so they might commit another crime because they have to in order to survive. So you're starting that sort of cycle early on in a youth's life where if I take them out of school and put them into a justice facility, you're essentially taking away resources from them. Um, The other terrible part, and that's just intrinsic in our criminal justice system and our education system as well, is that this is really targeting students of color from a lower socioeconomic status in their neighborhood schools. So there should be active ways of abolishing it. And one way is to get police out of schools. That way students can't be arrested in school and put be put into the criminal justice system. Um, but that's my, that'll be my soapbox for the, <laughs> that'll be my non-statistic soapbox for the podcast. <laughs> so kind of related to that, Jessica asked, Mm -hmm. is there a standard in jails or prisons for continuing education or classes in the U.S.? So, like, once kids are taken out of their classroom environment, are they required to finish up any high school classes, or are they given the opportunity to finish up the education that they're missing out on? So, I want to say 
Don't quote me on this because I might be incorrect. Most states, if not all, require some form of education while a youth is incarcerated. So, um, so they must be working on things that lead towards either their diploma or their GED, but the quality of this education can be questionable, it actually can kind of vary, um, because they might not have all the resources that a school does, or they only offer a few classes, so a student might be put into a class that's too advanced for them, or they might be put into a class that they've already taken, and because of that, they'll not have a consistent education like they would at their neighborhood school and it might be harder for them to transition back into their school or to another uh, middle or high school once they leave the facility. They might become frustrated if they're forced to take the same courses over and over again. Okay, Aaron asked me to double check whether or not the education that juvenile detainees receive is accredited or not. Um, and I spent about two hours looking into this and didn't find exactly what I was looking for, but I did find a lot of information about education in the juvenile justice system. So, according to the Juvenile Law Center, 66% of justice-involved youth will not finish or they will drop out of high school. An estimated 1% of all of the youth in the justice system will graduate from college. Part of the reason that these numbers are so extreme is because there's a lack of resources for these students to be able to receive a quality education, or really any education. According to a national survey conducted by the Bellwether Education Partners, in traditional high schools, 96% of students will have access to an Algebra 1 course, while students in prison will only have an 82% chance of having access to even enrolling in the same course. As the level of math courses goes up, the chance of the students in the justice system being able to take that course goes down. You may think 82% of all imprisoned students having access to a math class isn't bad because it's such a high percentage, but the real problem lies in the percent of students who are able to pass. In traditional school systems, the national average of students who pass an Algebra 1 class is 95%. While the passing rate varies widely in the justice system, the national average to pass is 61%, which means that these students aren't being given the attention and help that they need in order to get even a minimum of a 65%. That's a D- minus in a single math class. These numbers may not seem significant, but how would it look to a teacher if 12 students in a 30-person math class just completely flunked? And while many schools allow students to retake or make up classes that they missed or failed, only 43% of juvenile justice schools have the resources to let students do this. While the U.S. Department of Education mandates and seeks to protect the right to an education, especially to students in neglected school systems and juvenile justice centers through the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was signed into law in 2015, there isn't much accountability and data collection on whether or not that act is even working. The Council of State Government's Justice Center compiled a document in 2018 that outlines what the goals of the act were and what steps could be taken to ensure that they benefit all students, including the ones that are in juvenile justice centers. I'm going to link this document in the episode notes for this episode because it really shows the shortcomings of what the act is aiming to do and how it's being enforced in the juvenile justice system. So 
that's for juveniles, but for adults, there's really no standard. Um, it really depends on the state, which prison you're sent to. So if you go to a federal or a state prison, it's really going to differ. So some prisons might have college courses and some of them might have, uh, some sort of workforce training programs, some more professional training. So it might be something like welding or electrician work, um, cooking, things like that. There's no real standard on these. There are some organizations that provide more standardized continuing education classes, but it, again, depends where the prison is, where the people are from, and they're often limited to only a few people because of resources, um, and there's usually, like, a high bar of entry, so if, uh, so someone to be eligible for this might have to have perfect behavior while they were in the prison the whole time that they were there before the class or it's by seniority or something like that. So this is getting a little bit better, but there's definitely no standard, which is really a problem because one of the ways that people can have a more successful re-entry process where they enter back into their communities is to receive an education because that ultimately helps them receive a job which gives them a stable income, which can reduce their likelihood of committing another crime or being arrested. So sadly, Jessica, there's no standard for jails or prisons. Difference between jails and prisons. Jails are temporary, so you stay in there a year or less. Prisons, you have longer than a year. So... The main difference between jails and prisons is the amount of time that a person can expect to be incarcerated. Jails are meant to serve as short-term facilities for people awaiting trial or serving misdemeanor convictions. Jails are operated by local law enforcement or another local agency, and while some people may stay in one for over a year, many of the terms served in jails are shorter. Prisons are operated by the federal or state governments for prisoners serving longer felony sentences. Prison sentences are often longer and can be classified in a range from minimum to maximum security because the prisoners are often there to serve more time for more serious felonies. Jails, there's really nothing because you're likely to leave within a year. Um, well, you have to leave within a year. Well, <laughs> that's really complicated. Theoretically, you're in jail for only a year or less. Okay. Prisons would be where they would have these sorts of programs because you are there for longer. Yeah. But yeah, sadly, there is no requirement for adults. For juveniles, there is a requirement, but not necessarily a standard. Youth are required to be at the standard of their state's education. So, for example, if a high schooler is earning their high school diploma while in a justice facility and for math they're required to take up through Algebra 2... The facility is required to offer Algebra 2. Caveat, that doesn't mean they're going to have a teacher who's qualified to teach Algebra 2 or the right textbooks. They just have to say that they offer it. Okay. Whereas a private institution might not have to offer that because they don't have to guarantee. They can say, oh, we're giving an equivalency diploma that doesn't require Algebra 2. It just requires you passing a test. So for juveniles, the, the standard isn't there in terms of quality, but there are requirements that the facilities should be following. Okay, I decided to give Erin another follow-up call to our original call to discuss the Department of Justice's press release 
announcing that Attorney General Barr directed the Federal Bureau of Prisons to resume capital punishment after a nearly two-decade lapse. So I had no idea what that meant, so I hopped on a call with Aaron to discuss. And apologies here for the audio quality because we were both kind of recording this on the fly. Okay, so Aaron, do you want to give me a hot take? A hot take? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, my hot take is I am very against it. So, I'll talk about the differences first between state and federal. So, okay. essentially, if you commit a crime, you're either committing a crime against the state or against the U.S. government. So, if you're okay. committing a criminal offense... We'll say that. Uh We're not talking about civil court. We're talking about a criminal offense. So if I were to murder someone in the state of Maryland and Uh I've just murdered someone in the state of Maryland, I would have committed a crime against the state of Maryland. So Uh because Maryland has abolished the death penalty... I can't receive the death penalty for this crime. I can receive life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. That's the harshest sentence I can get. Okay. But let's say that I'm in the District of Columbia. Let's say I murder someone in D.C. I think this would count. Perhaps I'm wrong. So let's say for the sake of argument that this counts. Okay. Okay. I think it does. So let's say I murder someone in Maryland, I hop on the metro, I go into D.C., I murder someone else, and then I go back on the metro and murder someone in Virginia. And Okay. Um, so that would be what we would call an interstate crime because it happened over state laws. And because of that, that would be a federal crime. So I'd be charged in federal court. Okay, buckle up for a long aside about the differences between federal and state crimes. Okay, so are you still confused about what crimes might be handled by federal courts and not state courts? And what would get you the death penalty in that case? Okay, me too. So first, a federal crime is something that the federal government deems is illegal. This can be anything from tax evasion to importing a pregnant sheep from Canada. Many of these crimes make sense, like you can't use a fake passport, but there are also some weird and wild things that are illegal. The Twitter account Crime a Day is just one source trying to document the entirety of the weird rules that the U.S. government enforces. I definitely encourage reading them for maybe hours and laughing at all of them. All right, now that we know what it is, how can you get sentenced to death by the federal government? Well, you can find a very long list of all of the crimes that the federal government can charge you to the big bad punishment for on the Wikipedia page entitled Capital Punishment by the United States Federal Government. So this includes some offenses such as treason, kidnapping members of the U.S. government, causing mass death with a weapon, or hijacking an airplane. At the moment, the federal government has 63 people on death row, all of them for aggravated murder. They're housed at the Federal Correction Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. So wouldn't some federal crimes also be state crimes? Yep. And sometimes that can mean a person could be tried in both courts. 
So if someone is found guilty in state cases, the case usually won't be tried in federal court, but there are rare occasions where it gets tried twice. In those cases, the rules of double jeopardy don't apply because of the dual sovereignty doctrine, which allows the U.S. and each state to enact their own laws and deal with breaking those laws on their own. An example of this would be the case of the LAPD officers who assaulted Rodney King back in 1994. The California Superior Courts acquitted or said the officers were not guilty, but then the federal courts decided that the officers were guilty because they violated King's civil rights. So I just want to remind everyone at this point that I'm not a lawyer or an expert on U.S. law, but I did spend several hours researching what Aaron didn't get a chance to cover in our brief follow-up call, and I'm trying my best to explain what I learned. <laughs> and basically for the past, I think it was 16 years, no one has pursued the death penalty in federal court. Okay. So we may have put people on death row and sentenced them to death, but we haven't scheduled their executions, um, especially under the Obama administration. We haven't scheduled their executions. People have just been kind of in limbo. But what Attorney General Barr has done, he's the highest power in the land in terms of the criminal law sphere. He's the top prosecutor in the entire country. He sets the rules. He essentially sets the tone for things. So for federal courts, he can decide, hey, we're going to move these executions along. But he Uh can't decide what's constitutional. What he's doing is technically constitutional since the death penalty is allowed and it's not outlawed by any federal mandate. He's saying, okay, we're now going to start doing this stuff So he can't decide what's constitutional, but he can say we're going to just not give anyone any executions or we are going to start giving people executions. So he's just basically saying, like, we're doing it. So for five people, so I think it was Uh five were on death row and he said, okay, we're going to schedule them now. I think in the past... So in the past 16 years, I think in general in federal court, people just haven't been sentencing death penalties. They've just been saying life without parole. Um, Okay. And, but now he's saying, no, you should be doing the death penalty. You should be doing this. Oh. So it's, it's both are happening. Um, Okay. And he's like encouraging it. Yeah. So the federal and state systems are different where like an individual state can outlaw the death penalty so any case tried in that state can't result in the death penalty but in federal court it's still legal okay so like let's say i just commit a crime in the state of maryland where the death penalty is like off the table Mm -hmm. i cannot be sentenced to death in the state of maryland correct Okay, so it's only in federal court it's an option now. It's not like overturning the fact that the death penalty has been rolled out in certain states. It's not overturning that. Correct. Now I understand. (laughs) So the example that I said before of me hopping on the metro and murdering people, all in the same like time period essentially where like I'm doing this as Uh one action, that's considered Uh an interstate crime because I'm crossing state borders. 
And anytime there's an interstate crime, all right, if I cross state lines doing a crime or uh-huh. I traffic something across state lines, that's now in the purview of the federal system. So that oh, way they don't have to okay. decide which state takes the case. It's like, oh, the federal government will handle this. Okay. So I think that makes a that lot more sense. Case. But Okay. Yeah. So All right. I have several reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> so first Give me your hot take. My hot take. So the death penalty, I personally am against it for my own ethical and moral reasons. But even uh-huh. still, even if you even if you think that the death penalty is justified for ethical and moral reasons, there are reasons why it still shouldn't be instated just for facts. Death penalty doesn't work as a deterrent. States that still have the death penalty still have murder. They're, yes. So that's not really an issue. It's also really expensive. It's a lot more expensive to hold someone on death row than in just normal prison. Is that because of, like, security reasons? Um, partially. They have to be in most people on death row. That could also be an overstatement. But I believe most people on death row are kept in solitary confinement. So that's a little bit more expensive. But the expensive part is that if you're on death row, you automatically get an appeals process. And so that's extra court time, extra juries, extra court-appointed lawyers, Things like that. So that's where the expense comes up. But also people are on death row for decades. So like some of these people have probably been on death row for 15 plus years. And that's actually normal in states too because of this appeals process. They get a certain amount of time where they can appeal their decision and have a completely new trial or several new trials. Okay. I was kind of curious about that because I feel like it comes up a lot when you're like hearing about like serial killer cases Mm -hmm. where... You know, they 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 were sentenced in the 80s, and they're still on death row. Yeah. So, like, I think that makes a lot more sense. And I also read a statistic that it's, like, 5% of people on death row may be innocent. Yes, that... So, is that part of it? That's also another part of it. So, there's a group called okay. the Innocence Project, and their... Yes. Yes. Their primary goal is to get people who are innocent off the <laughs> death row. And if you think okay. about it... I don't know the actual statistic for people who are innocent who are sentenced to non-death penalty. Um, (laughs) It might be a little bit higher, um, just because they're going to be a little bit more... Well, you would hope so. They're a little bit more diligent with death penalty cases. But, yes, so that's another... that, That might fall more on the ethical or moral spectrum, but there's basically kind of two streams of thinking in the criminal justice system. So basically there's one side where you say it's better to cast a wide net and to catch every criminal you can and catch a few innocent people in there in the process. That's one view. That's the crime control view. So basically it is better to catch all criminals and to punish a few innocent people than to not catch all the criminals. The other side of this is called the due process model where We want to look at every case really carefully and make sure no innocent people are sentenced. And Mm -hmm. if that means we use up all of our resources doing this and we let a few criminals go or we don't catch a few criminals, that's fine. As long as we protect the rights of every person who's going through the system. So people who 
see that 5% and say, oh my gosh, that's horrible, like myself, we believe in more of the due process model where we say it is unacceptable that someone innocent would be sentenced to death. Someone okay. on the more kind control model, like Barr and the Trump administration in general, Sessions was like this too. Well, that 5% is worth it to execute the 95% that are not innocent. Also, a lot of victims don't want those death penalties. Yeah, because I've definitely heard of, like, victims' families not wanting to seek out that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just wanting to seek out life without parole or something where the person kind of seeks to reform their actions for what they did. So is it kind of up to the state to determine if they're seeking the death penalty? Is that like a, a prosecutor's job or is that something that like the jury decides when sentencing? When does that kind of come down into the court? Yeah, so that's, um, so the death penalty is a little bit different from other sentencing. So let's take a non-death penalty case. Just let's say I robbed a convenience store. No one died. Okay. I robbed a convenience store. The jury is going to find me guilty or not guilty. Let's say they find me guilty. The next part mm -hmm. of it is sentencing. The judge in those cases has the sole power of sentencing. So they say, all right, you're going to go to jail for five years for this. Or, or to prison. You would go to prison. Uh, you would go to prison for five years for this. If in a okay. death penalty case... The prosecutor can suggest the death penalty. I believe in all states with it, it can only be for first-degree murder, so premeditated murder. Um, okay. Jury finds me guilty. The jury decides whether or not I should get the death penalty or life without parole, if those are the two options. However, in all that's case in all states except for Alabama. In Alabama... <laughs> okay. The judge has the ultimate decision. So let's say the jury says, we want life without parole. We don't want the death penalty. The judge can say, nah, I want the death penalty. They're getting the death penalty. So basically what you're saying is, if you have to commit murder, don't commit it in Alabama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> um, okay, good to know. <laughs> yes. I won't go into the whole political reason why, but... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, another thing. Another super important thing that's actually really, uh -huh. really important. We have mentioned the reason that Maryland <laughs> abolished the death penalty, or one of the yes. primary reasons, was because of racial bias. Okay, just going to cut in very quickly to say that Aaron and I did talk about the reason that the death penalty in Maryland was abolished in a past conversation, but it wasn't recorded, so... Erin says that somebody who really inspires her to do the work that she does was Ray Paternoster, who was a criminology professor and researcher at the University of Maryland who studied the racial disparities of capital punishment. He was really the main reason that Erin decided to pursue her degree at the University of Maryland because of the work that he did while he was there. Basically, he spent years studying data that proved that black defendants were more likely to get the death penalty than white defendants were. This research was later used as evidence of bias in the state's legal system against people of color, and capital punishment was halted in 2006. 
In 2013, Marilyn abolished capital punishment because of the research that Paternoster did. Unfortunately, Paternoster passed away before Aaron was able to meet him and attend some of his classes, but she said that he's still a big inspiration for the work that she does, and she can see the benefits of the work that he did in her other professors at the University of Maryland and in the students that she works alongside. So, black defendants are more likely to get the death penalty, especially if the victim is white. Because of white supremacy, white victims are seen as more tragic and more innocent than a black victim or a victim of color. Um, And it's more egregious when a person of color kills a white victim. There's so much racial bias in the death penalty that Maryland had decided um, after a series of hearings and research that this racial bias couldn't be corrected. And because that racial bias couldn't be corrected, the death penalty had to be abolished. So that's a really huge reason why this is concerning is because the racial bias of the death penalty probably cannot be resolved. So just because those, just because systematic racism is so entrenched, um, Uh that something like this of of taking someone's life is just so egregious and the fact that this bias probably won't go away or can't really be corrected systematically it just needs Uh to be abolished that's my hot take no death penalty (laughs) why do you think that your research is important do you think that there is an impact that you can see happening from it? Or do you hope it has some kind of impact? And what do you think that impact is? Yeah, so um, because I'm I'm a baby researcher, <laughs> um, I, I can't think of really any impact that my research has had, you know, on like a mass scale and a uh, few people can actually really see that, like, this one piece of research really made this huge difference. Like, it's actually pretty rare. But it's, I'm contributing to a body of literature that's saying, look at all this evidence of this. Here, policymakers, this is all the evidence of racial bias in our criminal justice system. These are all the evidence of collateral consequences. You can't not deny this anymore because we have so much information. So I'm hoping that I contribute to that body of literature and I can be eloquent enough to (laughs) defend that and go up to policymakers, even maybe even testify on in Congress or something. I don't know. But (laughs) and like that's going to be sort of the type of impact that I would realistically have. So my research is important because it deals with people's lives and it deals with the criminal justice system and how it's supposed to be this system that's set up to help people, but in reality, it's often hurting a lot of people. That's why the research is important, and I hope that my impact is that it contributes to a body of literature that helps change policy. And then, do you have a favorite resource about your field? Do you have something that people who may want to know more about what you do, do you advise them to read it or check it out from their local library or look it up on the internet? (laughs) Yeah, so utilize your local library. <laughs> Great place. Um, <laughs> an aside, but it's important. Sponsored. Um, sponsored by the concept of libraries. <laughs> I think actually some of the more 
the popular nonfiction books that have come out pretty recently are really great in explaining the ways in which our criminal justice system works and also some of the criminology research. So, for example, there are books like The New Jim Crow um, by Michelle Alexander. Um, Some of the things have been contested in terms of the way she writes about certain topics such as, like, rap and hip-hop, but the information in there is generally correct and as a big picture, you can see the ways in which our criminal justice system and mass incarceration has affected the lives of many African Americans. Netflix documentaries such as When They See Us is a mini-series, but it's based on a true story and it really highlights the injustices of the criminal justice system. 13th is an actual documentary. So I think things like that that are more part of popular media that are written for anyone to understand are really helpful because I admit academic works are really dense and it's taken me a really long time to understand what they're actually saying and doing and it's taken classes and all of my time to figure (laughs) this out. So I think those are really great ways of understanding mostly the criminal justice system, um, not so much the academic field, but hopefully... This podcast will help with understanding (laughs) research in general. So once you listen to all the episodes, (laughs) then you can... (laughs) Then you'll be an expert on research as a concept. Then you can go read a paper and even like the abstract and say, oh, this is what they're doing. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Erin. This is so amazing and I'm so proud of you as a friend. I'm proud of you too. Oh, thank you. I'm just so proud though of all of the expertise that you're able to share with me and with, by extension, anyone who listens to this. (laughs) Thank you. I'm honored that you asked me to be your guest. If you want to financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash research to sign up for monthly donations and support the show for as little as a dollar a month. As a thank you, Patreon supporters get extended episodes, priority on asking questions to guests, and they can choose what subject I get to treat myself to researching and sharing fun facts about. So this week's fun fact was sponsored by Audrey Torrance. She is at Audrey Stitches on Instagram, and she requested that I share the good news of capybaras. I love them. (laughs) They're the world's largest living rodent. So you can think giant guinea pigs that live in groups of 10 to 20 friends or in giant squads of up to 100 pals. Oh my gosh, definitely encourage looking them up. They're so cute. Their scientific name comes from the Greek for water pig because they have webbed toes and can hold their breath underwater for up to five minutes. Even though capybaras are extremely cute, you may not want one as a pet. They're super social, so they need to have a lot of friends around. They need a lot of water to hang out in or near and will chew on literally everything you love because their teeth never stop growing. While capybaras are extremely cute and friendly, you might not want to pet one in the wild because they're common hosts for ticks, which are disease vectors, aka they spread Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Also, I did just end up watching a ton of videos of capybaras playing with puppies because that's a thing that exists in the universe and it made me so happy. So it was absolutely worth it for research purposes, obviously. 
thank you, Audrey, again for supporting the show and choosing this amazing topic that I really loved looking up. I just wanted to say thank you again to Erin for taking the time to talk to me not once but twice. Um, you can learn more about Erin's work with the Vera Institute of Justice at Vera, V-E-R-A, dot org. If you felt moved by what you heard today, please consider donating to causes like the Vera Institute or your local equivalent that is working towards justice reform. It's really easy to become overwhelmed by huge systematic issues, but taking the first step to learn about them is a big part of making change happen. As Erin mentioned, change happens on a local level, so doing your research on candidates and voting in local elections for roles like judges and prosecutors is so important. I'm going to share as much good information as I can, as well as resources and reference materials in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at mmuir.com slash research. And thanks to you for listening to WeSearch. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I'm currently working my butt off to share my excitement about learning with as many people as possible and hoping that I can help people build research literacy along the way. If you're a researcher and want to share your work or you're just very excited about learning and want to talk about it, please reach out to me at wesearchpod at gmail.com. And you can follow along at wesearchpod on both Instagram and Twitter.